Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Rural versus urban, of red versus blue, are not the same frames that exist at the local level. And the only times that in conversation people seem frustrated with local media. If the 2016 presidential election taught us anything, it's that the country is more divided than ever. What opportunities are out there for newsrooms to bridge that gap? I'm Michael O'Connell, and you're listening to It's All Journalism. Today via Skype, I'm joined by Andrea Wenzel and Sam Ford, who've completed a report for the Tau Center entitled Lessons on Overcoming Polarization from Bowling Green and Ohio County, Kentucky. Welcome to the podcast, Andrea and Sam. Thank you. Nice to be here. Appreciate it. Excited to have a conversation about this. Okay, excellent. As am I. I I read the report, and as I told you before we started recording, I, I really found it enlightening in a lot of different ways. Andrew, you've been on the podcast before talking about solutions journalism, and you'd actually mentioned that you were going to be involved in this project. So let's let's start there. You know, what is the project? You know, you say that it is focusing on polarization. What does that mean? Sure. I mean, I think like a lot of us with all this kind of rhetoric about how we're such a divided country right now, how people's lives are kind of polarized as far as what media they're getting. I wanted to kind of think through, you know, what does that mean at the local level in people's lives? And are there any kind of shared spaces left where people have opportunities to talk to people from the so-called other side? And I mean, I, I just started thinking about this, you know, even looking at my own parents who are Republican and who um, get most of their news from Fox, but they still get a local newspaper. And, you know, they might talk mostly to neighbors who share their political beliefs, but they might also go to a church where they could run into people with a different point of view. And so I wanted to try to find a case study where I could talk to people and kind of get a better sense of, you know, are there any shared spaces left where people can encounter people who have a different point of view? And so I wanted to find a place where people who identified with the right and the left were in proximity to kind of try to understand the situation. And I had a very good fortune to meet um, Sam Ford, um, who introduced me to two different areas in Kentucky where we could do this. Sam, I don't know if you want to explain a little bit about where we, where this was situated. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I began my career in rural journalism. I went to J school in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which is the home of Western Kentucky University, which has speaking with bias, quite a good uh, J school. And uh, but but I had worked in community journalism as a society columnist, which we'll come back to that later as a teenager for my hometown rural weekly newspaper. So while I was in college, I was uh, working for the campus paper some, but I was also working in rural newsrooms and communities, uh, you know, maybe an hour or more away from campus. So my career had taken me elsewhere. Uh, I had uh, been working most recently for Univision and the Fusion Media Group, running an innovation team there. And Andrea contacted me just as I'd wrapped up my work there with this project. And, you know, one of the things that I was interested in is to think about how all these issues were playing out locally for me. None of the projects I'd worked on for the last many years, I'd moved back to Kentucky 
several years prior, but none of my work had been really because of where I was based. It was sort of under the auspices of you could you could work anywhere. And so as we started having these chats, we had just gotten through, and you may be familiar with this, Michael, the uh, Bowling Green Massacre had occurred or not occurred not that long before uh, Andrea and I were having this chat. So I was really interested in, in the ways in which Kentucky, which was the first state called for President Trump, this region uh, in western Kentucky is a is a coal region, so it's been uh, in the center of some of these conversations about bringing manufacturing coal jobs back, and so I was really you know interested in the dynamics here. To think on the one hand, you have a rural area and a background in tobacco farming and coal mining and a lot of old school manufacturing, a lot of the industries that already have or are being heavily disrupted. At the same time, you have Bowling Green, a college town, as well as a refugee resettlement area that was just in the national spotlight because of that refugee resettlement part with this conversation around the Bowling Green massacre. To think about not just the blue, red, purple divides, but also to think about uh, urban, suburban, rural divides and all the ways that some of these framings at a national level are really coming to impact people at a regional and local level. So I think we'd be remiss if we didn't explain what the Bowling Green Massacre was. <laughs> sure. And our res- the residents here really had some fun with it. But yeah, so earlier in 2017, shortly after the the beginning of the Trump administration, Kellyanne Conway made reference in giving justification to the the ban on travel from multiple nations mostly in the in the Middle East the justification was the the massacre that happened in Bowling Green what they were actually referring to was a situation here in the town I live in several years back where a couple of Iraqi refugees who were living here were arrested on domestic terrorism charges for trying to uh, send support to insurgent forces in Iraq. And uh, you know there was no massacre, there was no domestic incident that happened. But that turned into, in the course of a nighttime talk show, the Bowling Green Massacre. So, you know, this county that I live in, which was, you know, which very solidly went for Donald Trump in the election was also then mocking the administration in all sorts of ways, making jokes about this massacre that didn't happen. So there were a lot of shrines and uh, marches and candlelight vigils, uh, mourning truth, and uh, a lot of discussion around kind of framing in the news and political rhetoric and how it uh, sort of distorts the truth, which seemed like a very good topic at a regional level to have the conversations that Andrea and I were interested in and in, in bringing together. So the reactions were pretty much against the way that the media had sort of blown it up or sort of spun something that was a, obviously a mistake or a misstatement into something else? Some of both. There was a candlelight vigil the day after for truth and human rights. You know, there were a lot of groups, you know, Bowling Green being a real mix on the one hand, college town refugee resettlement area on the other case in a fairly conservative county that overall uh, went for Trump in the election. You know, there was a mixed set of reasons why people were responding, but they were fairly unified in their 
making fun of the administration. So it was interesting. You know, for some of them, it was like mocking the media frame. For some of them, it was a sort of lighthearted poke of fun at a what you know they saw as a misstatement. For others, it was a chance to really take a dig at the policies of the administration. But you had a fairly playful moment. A lot of the reaction here was lighthearted and bipartisan, even if the motivations were different for the reaction. So we had everything from a local restaurant serving the Bowling Green Massacre pizza to a website that was launched the next morning uh, for the Bowling Green Massacre Victims Fund, but it was actually a donation to the ACLU, you know, all the way down to different like memes with uh, tributes and signs for the, the Bowling Green Massacre. There were a few songs written about that fateful day that didn't happen, etc. So it's fair to say that the Bowling Green Massacre was able to sort of unite the community in some ways, I guess. For Yeah, from different, even from different ideological perspectives, they were united in resisting the framing of the moment and some of the kind of escalation of the rhetoric that had led to such a ridiculous statement as... CNN came and did a video, and the local news, our local daily newspaper was interviewed, and they said, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but they said, you know, we've been here for 150 years. If a massacre happened, we would have known about it. So there was a lot of sort of unity and, and laughter, even if people had different points of view of why they were laughing. So let's talk about the study. You know, we've sort of described what the community is, the polarization between, you know, red and blue and purple and you know, rural and, and big city. So what is it you set out to do? And, you know, how did you do it? What were the ways that you studied this problem? So, I mean, you know, it was kind of very appropriate that we kind of go to this sort of home of this great fake news story. But um, we wanted to understand, you know, we talk about polarization, but what does that mean in, in folks' day-to-day -day existence? So you, you might be getting news from a certain point of view, but you're also interacting with people and talking with people and how does that kind of larger context affect how you kind of make sense of the information you're getting. And so we structured it in a couple of different, we did a series of different things as far as the method goes. So we started out by doing a series of focus groups along with some colleagues from the Tau Center where we talked to people about how their news and social media use has been changing over the years. And then from that, invited folks to keep a story diary where they basically kind of took notes for a week of stories that caught their eye and you know how they kind of talked about them with other people whether they shared them on social media you know how they thought about the issues that they raised and then use those as a sort of jumping off point to have follow-up interviews and the great thing was is we could have kind of an insider outsider perspective on things because obviously I'm the outsider Sam's the insider he could you know recruit people and make sure we had a, a really good mix of people from different demographic backgrounds and points of view and then I could kind of have like a frame of distance to kind of look at what they had to say and then kind of combine that together to make sense of sort of what the the bigger picture was. So that's sort of how we approached it. So what was it you were able to find out? You know, what was it they were writing in their diaries? What were they telling you about the news that they were consuming? Basically, polarization was something that people experienced in a very personal way. So people had you know, stories of having, you know, falling out with people that were close to them in their life, boyfriends and girlfriends breaking up, hearing people say they're going to change churches. 
or people who weren't talking to various relatives anymore. So the situation was something where people felt it in their lives very close to home. And at the same time, though, people were sharing community spaces. So they would see each other when they're watching their kids' gymnastics meet or or a soccer game or bumping into each other in the aisles of Walmart. But they wouldn't necessarily talk, get into the nitty-gritty of politics. There's a lot of self-censorship people talked about. So people were, you know, using media, of course, from different sides. There was some overlap, which was interesting, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about how local news played into that. But it was it was a kind of complicated thing where people were changing their news practices because of this kind of polarized moment. I think anybody who, you know, after the election, who has spent any time, you know, in social media, seeing how the social media... Ch- feed has changed on Facebook and on Twitter, the people they follow, the people who are unfollowing them, you know, the types of posts that you you may not want to be seeing on your Facebook anymore. And suddenly people that you knew for a very long time, or maybe you didn't know very well, or even family members, Uh, you talk about family members as well uh, in the report. And it was actually, you know, surprisingly for me in reading the the Tao Center report, the report that you did on your study, there's a lot of real human stuff in here. You, you sort of touch on it, which, what you just said about, you know, these people are, you know, they're involved in the big debate that's going on, big political debate in, in the world around media and the two large political sides going on. But it's all part of their life and they're internalizing it and, and they're having to make these decisions about how they deal with it. You know, do I, you know, do I, you know, stop doing social media? Do I give up Facebook? You had several people who said that they'd just given up Facebook. Was that pretty typical? There was definitely sort of like a trend of either either kind of digging in deeper and really trying to verify information or just tuning out and either like switching off Facebook. Some people talked about wanting to cut their cable or just like looking for kind of distractions, like watching celebrity gossip kinds of stuff. And so it was either like you kind of cycle between digging in to try to make sense of things and double check things and fact check or you just tune out. Yeah. And the other thing you mentioned in the report is that there was a sort of a recognition, mostly I think they were talking about cable news, that they recognized that there were certain networks that they felt had political bias and they viewed them in different ways in, you know, either they were hiding their bias or their bias was out there. So I, I, obviously I'm not going to believe what they say rather than saying, going all in on one saying, that, you know, I, all I believe is Fox News, they recognized the shortcomings of Fox News, but they would also, you know, accuse other outlets of of bias, either blatant or, or hidden. And so it was strange that, you know, certainly they would maybe go to cable outlets that, that supported their political perspective, but they may, may recognize that that was coming from a particular bent and they still would seek out other people or other news outlets to sort of to validate what they believe or to measure the truthfulness of uh, the news source that they follow, sort of weigh them off against each other. Yeah. I mean, people would, you know, check the other side, they would say, you know, so if they were identified more on the right, they would say, oh, I'm going to look at CNN and see what they have to say or uh, from the left, I'm going to look at Fox. And, And most people were pretty open with their frustrations about all sides, <laughs> including the stuff that they were using and watching. Well, I found that a little surprising that even those who, who describe themselves as being, you know, particularly one side of the political fence, you know, they, they pretty much 
said everybody in, in some way was biased and and that they you know saw things that were lacking in, in each of them so you you mentioned uh, a little while ago lo- local news now they they you know how does um how does local news versus national news sort of fit into this equation sure i mean maybe sam do you want to share a little bit about what the local news landscape is there yeah so you know you have a challenge in this region in the sense that so kentucky has 120 counties and many of them are small and rural many of them have in the case of ohio county which was the rural county that we included in this project there is a local radio station that has a daily lunchtime call-in show that tackles some current events and issues uh, as part of it there is a weekly printed newspaper uh, that's been around for a long time and then there is a digital startup news organization the ohio county monitor the ohio county times news is the name of the of the newspaper you know and so they're all very small newsrooms we had you know there's an editor at the at the weekly paper and and one part-time staff writer that writes for several different papers or, uh, or multiple papers in multiple counties the startup is run by two brothers who are the only employees and and so you know they have challenges you know this county this rural county the fifth largest in land size of the 120 but with the very uh 24,000 people population uh, they have six city governments to cover as well as the county government and you know that creates a lot of challenges meanwhile you have bowling green which is about 45 minutes from the border into ohio county less than that maybe 30 and you know it covers things regionally so the tv station the npr affiliate in bowling green uh, uh, covers ohio county the daily newspaper doesn't officially cover ohio county but is read by some there and so to think about the the overall news diet is interesting when it comes to engaging in and around local news. I think there was certainly a consensus across, again, across the political affiliations that local news outlets were often under-resourced, had a lot of challenges, but on the other hand, there was not the same frame overall, even if people you know disagreed with content from that they'd seen in a local outlet. The attitude toward local news certainly didn't include the same frames uh, when we think about these issues on a national level. Sort of fitting into this, let's talk a little bit about the the diversity of the community. You mentioned that, is it around the Bowling Green community that, that it, uh, there's an immigrant population? So Bowling, Bowling Green's about, currently about 65,000 people plus you know some of the college students may or may not fit into that number that are living in the dorms and since 1981 10,000 refugees have been resettled in Bowling Green and then you know throughout this in the surrounding area and certainly as those have become multi-generational families over time there is for instance a sizable Bosnian population in Bowling Green. I, you know, the estimate's hard to, to know for sure. Bowling Green is something like maybe, you know, 12 or 13 uh, percent Muslim. And so when you think about a 65,000 person town in Kentucky, the demographics are certainly different than what you would expect. Plus the university, it's a state school, but it has uh, 
put a lot of emphasis on recruiting international students. So there's a sizable Saudi population, Chinese population that have come into town through through that. And has there's a lot of work here, for instance, in the automotive space. So there are a lot of you know, transnational businesses here. So as you think about that mix, it's very easy to sort of, you know, to imagine Bowling Green as a you know, somewhat more diverse, you know, particularly diverse for a state like Kentucky type of town and the rural areas being, you know, much more heavily white. But one of the things that we found as we were doing this work is that even those narratives get complicated because the demographics are shifting even if at a slower rate, you know, in rural places as well and we discovered in the course of having these conversations that for instance a good portion of members of the refugee community travel up the parkway to rural ohio county to work in a chicken processing plant up there so when we were talking to uh, one of the community members who try to help uh, whose job whose job it is to go into work sites and talk to people about health and diet and wellness uh, one of the challenges for her she mentioned was that She's in this rural county in a small office, and when they go into Purdue, there are 19 languages spoken in the plant, as an example. Yeah, and the reason I bring up diversity is because one of the things that you said in your report that I found very interesting is, as you mentioned before, you know, people recognize that local media is underfunded. It's under-resources, I guess a better way to put it. And, you know, there's a, you know, they would prefer, they prefer, I guess, local media or, or maybe would it be fair to say that they trust local media more than um, like a national media? I would say certainly. And also just that these frames of rural versus urban, of red versus blue are not the same frames that exist at the local level. And the only times that in conversation people seem frustrated with local media particularly vehemently would be in places where, for instance, local media somehow got involved in conversation around those national frames and issues. That as long as it's local media covering issues that matter to the region, there was very much a a blurring of the lines of these frames when you weren't talking about things on a on a national narrative level and you were talking about them as it affects the region. And I think that's this is what you were saying in the report that they preferred maybe a, a news source that was more reflective of their community, uh, either the makeup of or maybe even just the types of stories that are more important to them. Absolutely. I mean, there is a lot of like discourse that's you know about representation, about wanting to feel that the media is reflecting people like them. And I found it really interesting as an outsider coming in because a lot of these conversations reflected conversations I had had in other very different communities in places like the south side of Chicago or South LA, where you have other kinds of marginalized communities who feel like the media, the so-called mainstream media has misrepresented them. It's not reflecting their interests. And so to hear a lot of these similar concerns that a sense that we're being stereotyped by the national media, we're not, you know, our, our perspective is not, I can't, I can't recognize myself in what's being shown. Um, to hear that in these parts of Kentucky was to me fascinating and underlined that point that people do want local media that reflects and, you know, that's why local media and regional media offers, I think, some really interesting potential. Yeah, and certainly, you know, Andrea, I think you would concur with this, but you know, what was especially interesting is that 
concern about framing, especially of a national level, framing the place where the communities where these people live. That was a very bipartisan concern. And, you know, so it's really interesting to think it's, it's certainly not a, you know, for instance, liberal media framing a, a red state sort of concern. Everybody across the board said, you know, indicated one way or another a concern about how their place and, and their identities get represented in the national conversation, which, of course, becomes a very different dynamic when you're talking about journalists who are from and embedded in your your communities, your region themselves. And I think, um, you know, we're going to talk about, you know, some recommendations you have for community-based reporters and newsrooms, but even for like a, you know, this is something maybe national newsrooms need to recognize, you know, certainly trying to get out a complex story, something that may have a, an angle that, that really only affects one type of community or one small community, you know, trying to play that out over a, a large national audience can sometimes be challenging. But so it's, I guess, understandable then that a smaller community, they would recognize that you know, the media that, that's homegrown, that's, that's closer to them, is, is going to be more know what their real concerns are. So from your study, what recommendations do you have or what strategies have you come up with for local newsrooms, community newsrooms? We came up with some recommendations based on the study, and then we had the great opportunity to kind of talk through those with people who were involved in the study in a workshop. But some of the initial things that we came up with were just based on what people had told us, things like exploring. Again, I don't mean to always go back to solutions journalism, but that was one thing that people expressed a frustration with was always having news that was exclusively negative and wanting to kind of know more about like what are some approaches to trying to address problems? What are some ways of looking at local issues from a more solutions-oriented lens? Um, so that was one thing. Um, thinking about collaboration possibilities. So how how can outlets maybe collaborate with each other? How can groups that are working at a national level and want to do something, you know, how can they collaborate with existing outlets, not necessarily, you know, making some new outlet, but looking at, you know, where are people already getting their news from and how can you work with them? And then, you know, looking at opportunities for engagement and, you know, to, to work with community members to engage them and, and possibly have them participate more. So. That was something that we talked about a lot in our workshop and kind of brainstormed brainstormed some ideas about. But that was, you know, a big thing as far as if you want to establish trust and try to create opportunities for dialogue across these, you know, differences. Then how how do you kind of work with community members to get them involved? Now, the last time you were on the podcast, you were talking about an experience that happened up in Chicago. Is what they did there? Is that something that could could work in? you know, rural uh, Kentucky or in, in other communities like that? Potentially. I mean, so that was a, a project that used the the Harkin platform um, that WBEZ was doing with Curious Cities. And they did a combination of face-to-face outreach and, and digital outreach. So what we did was we had this workshop where we brought together a number of different folks working on engagement, including Harkin, but also some others. And they they had some they brainstormed about you know what might work here because it has to be something we didn't want to dream something up and try to impose it upon people we wanted to give them an opportunity to try to think through and and not just the the reporters and the journalists but also residents who were involved in the study we invited them to participate in that process too. I don't know Sam, do you want to share some of some of what 
that experience was like? Yeah, you know, I think what was particularly interesting about it, so we had the outlets from Bowling Green and from Ohio County that we mentioned earlier. We also had some folks who do regional coverage like Kentucky Educational Television, which is the PBS network in in Kentucky. We had Ohio Valley Resource, which is a collaboration across several different public radio stations in West Virginia, Southern Ohio, and Kentucky. We also had a few people who participated in the study join the workshop and kind of in several different rounds. So we had a few who participated for the full day as well as some members of some community groups. And then we had the, the great opportunity to, that we broke into smaller groups, brainstorm ideas, and then we had some residents from Bowling Green who participated in the study but couldn't join us for the full day come in and join the conversation of re- reacting to each other's, each group's ideas. Then we uh, hopped into the uh, cars and headed up the parkway to Ohio County and met with a group of residents there over a catfish dinner to likewise share some of the ideas we came up with and get some reactions and feedback. And I think just, you know, for me, one of the big takeaways, we'll talk about some of the ideas the groups came up with, but even just that process itself was such an instructive one. You know, we came into it, the homework for everybody was to read the report, but that became the jumping off point, you know, 30 minutes into the meeting or so, we were done with the report. (laughs) And the rest of the day was taking this collective sharing a few case studies of stuff that's been tried elsewhere and then really rolling up our sleeves and thinking about what could be done and then having the chance to have multiple rounds of reactions from the communities we covered built into the day. I think that was a really exciting process for me to go to because I've, you know, not been a part of, we were trying to prototype something that hadn't, we hadn't quite seen done in that exact way before. And I think some, some particularly interesting ideas came out of it, which we'd be happy to tell you a little bit about. Yeah, tell us about some of these ideas. I'll roll with one. One of the groups had a conversation around the dynamics of the refugee community that we were just talking about earlier. So included in this group was a member of of the community from Ohio County, as well as one of the people who's with the International Center of Kentucky, which is the, the group that handles refugee resettlement. And as they were brainstorming these issues, the idea they came up with, inspired by some work that groups like Spaceship Media have done in the past, is how could you bring together mothers from Ohio County and mothers from the refugee community in Bowling Green over their shared conversations and concerns as parents to talk about issues that they're facing as the day evolves. So we ended up in Ohio County over that catfish dinner talking to community members there and the issue that I mentioned earlier of a lot of those refugees actually working in rural Ohio County came up. And so the idea further evolved that maybe the conversation is specifically between mothers who work at that chicken processing plant or other places in Ohio County and already directly interact with that rural community, but these people don't necessarily see each other. Could you bring mothers from both those two communities in the regions together to talk about things like healthy eating and living, share recipes, et cetera, in a setting, maybe it's an online setting where you could have translation help available, but just to find a way to bridge these two communities together and have them start uh, interacting and intersecting with one another. And then to think about the potential stories from a, back to a journalism perspective, 
that could be formed out of these conversations, out of this cultural exchange. You know, and it was exciting for us because this was an idea that came from the group and evolved over the course of the day and each iteration of the conversation. So just to sort of continue along that track, there's this sort of idea of, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go interview somebody, I'm going to ask questions, but this is sort of a sideways way about going and developing a different type of journalism where you're creating a situation to address a particular problem or, or interest or concern, creating a scenario, and then from that, you know, your stories sort of grow. As a very like big picture question is like what how can how can journalism play a constructive role in helping to rebuild a public sphere, a place where people can have dialogue? What is you know, not everybody thinks about journalism as having this as a responsibility, but I think that it's a really important aspect, a really important contribution journalism can make. So, I mean, thinking about not only how are you going to get stories out of this, but how can kind of this be a sort of public service in itself that you're creating opportunities for people to interact either online or offline or a combination of the two, and that it can also be a way to have, you know, to crowdsource story ideas, to have, you know, to in involve community members in the process of getting story ideas early on and sort of throughout the, the process of production. So, I mean, yeah, I think that it's, it's a way of sort of thinking about what roles can community members play in a more active way and how can they kind of be involved in, in, as your source for stories as well as just your audience, you know, thinking of them as having a more active role than just a passive audience. You know, when you think from a regional perspective, certainly when you think about audiences in rural areas where the local media is fairly understaffed and often has difficulty covering everything that's happening there and the regional media is even less invested in giving coverage. When you think about the challenges that uh, regional media have of properly covering refugee communities, any sort of you know, community that might be English as a second language or not speak English uh, at all. So, you know, what I thought was especially interesting about this project is you have two communities here who also suffer from a, a lack of adequate coverage in a lot of ways looking to come together. So it's also a great opportunity for newsrooms to think about how to better serve communities that uh, haven't been particularly well represented and well served uh, by the current model. Yeah. And going back to what we were talking to earlier about diversity, this is a chance for showing people who may be different, who are living in your community and experiencing a lot of the same things that you do, but have a different background, sort of bridging those communities. Kind of similar to that, one of the other groups came up with an idea around town and gown divide. So specific to, you know, and this is, it sounds like it would be more a, a problem for a city like Bowling Green, but when you think about these state schools that have very much a regional focus, of course, a good portion of the gown side of that are students who come in from all the rural counties throughout the, the region. But one of those community participants had talked about her experience as a student at WKU experience and experiencing Bowling Green in one way moving away for a little while and then coming back and getting a job and being a Bowling Green resident not particularly connected to the university and experiencing two completely different towns which you know in a city of 65,000 you're not talking about a 
uh, major U.S. metro area, but these sort of two very different experiences of what seems on the surface to you know not be that complicated a place to navigate, and that group started to uh, think about and brainstorm ways in which the various Bowling Greens might be brought together. And the idea they came up with was to take a, a problem that's not particularly polarized, that groups kind of across different divides might care about in common. The, the idea they had come up with in, in particular was homelessness in Bowling Green and, and the area. And is there a way to create a, a collaborative approach where citizens come together to work on a common problem? Maybe even starting off in a digital setting where you don't immediately identify each other by whether you're a member of the WKU community or the regular community, by your race, by your religion, and work together to try to, to solve a common problem in ways that get people from different parts of town who don't normally intersect with one another to come together to work on a problem. And, of course, again, you can imagine all sorts of ways that that could lead to interesting stories, that that could lead to both about the subject but also about the process. So I think there's a lot of potential in that idea as it evolved throughout the day as well. What's next then for the study? Are you all wrapped up? Is there more that you're going to be doing with it? Well, I mean, there's certainly, we'll, we'll certainly be kind of like revisiting the data and I'll, I'll certainly be trying to, you know, do a little bit more writing about it. But I think for us, our priority is, is thinking about how can we support some of these groups who came out of this fired up to do some of these projects and, and what are some ways that we can kind of try to, you know, shepherd them in, you know, connecting with people who might be useful to connect with and, and kind of thinking through some of these and fleshing out some of the proposals a bit more. You know, one last idea that came out of it that I think was particularly fascinating and and kind of, I think, an important moment to think about was, I mean, and Sam, maybe you can chime in just a little bit about this, but there were several ideas that kind of went to thinking about, like, how do you kind of revisit some community traditions in a way that makes them more inclusive and use those to kind of create opportunities for public dialogue? Um, maybe, Sam, can you share a little bit about what, what the liar's table idea? Yeah, so in the course of the conversations of talking about having spaces for public spheres, different community traditions came up that are longstanding in, in this region but aren't necessarily only particular to this region. One of them is the idea of the liar's table, which uh, traditionally has been in diners or general stores in rural places where usually mostly men of the community would gather, have coffee, breakfast, kind of uh, throughout the day people pass in and out and discuss and debate local community issues, talk about you know important things and also maybe embellish and tell some big fish stories along the way too. And a lot of people, you know, that sort of experience at some point along the way came up, as well as the difficulty of maintaining those spaces, as a lot of rural areas have lost their local diners and their local general stores, as people get more accustomed to driving into a population center to do a lot of their shopping and commerce. There aren't public spheres, there aren't gathering places to have these conversations, and a Facebook feed, back to what we've been talking about earlier, becomes a very different sort of way to have conversations about those issues 
that aren't the you know don't necessarily repeat those same dynamics. People brought up some other similar traditions like literary clubs where it was more the country club crowd, but where people would gather in homes and talk about an issue and kind of take turns hosting. But all these different spaces that have long standing roots and providing a space for people to come together who may have quite divergent opinions and have robust discussion and some expectation that there's going to be some argument and disagreement and, and working through of things over the course of, of coffee and in a social setting where they imagine you're going to come back tomorrow or next week and engage some more. And, you know, these spaces were often, you know, only for people of a certain class setting or were very male dominated traditionally, but there are some roots that while they would need, you know, potentially some updating are, are longstanding traditions that were, were answers to some of these, some of these questions. Um, the same thing came up along, I mentioned earlier, I, I started my career writing a society column which I took over from my grandmother in small rural places. These were columns in the newspaper where a community contributor would gather news about community events happening, who'd had a birth or a death in the family, all the way down to if somebody has did somebody visit from out of town in the past week and would become the community correspondent in the weekly newspaper to say, if you care about this little dot on the map, here's everything that's happened here this past week. And those traditions, you know, those columns have, have slowly faded over time. There are still some left, but there was some discussion of, of community journalism tradition that has long-standing roots in these communities that might perhaps be revisited and, and rethought in a 21st century setting uh, in ways that could speak to more community engagement around the news and providing more potential for civic engagement, particularly in rural places. That's something that's really hopeful. It's sort of has a nice sort of promise or, or, you know, a possibility for going forward and bring that sort of old time approach to reader engagement, community engagement, sort of enriching the news process, both in two ways. In one, you know, giving people some news that they're, they're going to be able to use that's very valuable to them, that's local and reflects them as a community, but also you know, establishes that line of communication between your audience so that they can share their stories with you. This has been really fascinating. I highly recommend that that uh, if you're listening to this, you should check out the uh, Tau Center report that uh, Andrea and Sam have put together. I'll have the links with that with this, uh, this interview. Thank you both for uh, coming on the podcast. This was great. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for letting us share these ideas and, and look forward to exploring them some more. Okay, thanks. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Next time on It's All Journalism. Being a writer, especially if you're a freelancer or you're a fiction writer, any kind of writer, just putting your work out in the world is not, you know, it's not easy. You have to deal with people's judgment. You have to deal with rejection. And so I think the more that you keep yourself excited to do the work and remember that you're excited and allow yourself that process, the more you can kind of weather the times that it's difficult. In our next podcast, I talked to Julia Goldberg about her new book, Inside Story. We discuss the writing process and how journalists can improve their word smithery, if that's such a word. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and the Podcast One app. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell.
Are you coming to the Online News Association's conference in D.C. next week? I'll be moderating a panel about building an audience for your podcast on Thursday, October 5th at 2 p.m. Stop on by, check out our panel, and afterwards, come on up and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you, and if you ask nicely, I might have some cool swag for you. Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? You can help support us by donating to our Patreon page. That's what Dan Mikowski did. He's our first contributor. He's pledged $3 a month to support our podcast. Thank you, Dan. And if you'd like to join Dan, follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you some cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to spin ideas for future shows or even appear in an upcoming episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link at the top of the page. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.